This is the uh, building a culture of unity within a society of um, just diversity and and just all that, you know. So, uh, welcome. Glad that you guys made it here to the end here. Uh, you made it. Yes, you have persevered to the end. So fantastic. So excited to get to hear from Pastor Harrison here in just a second. Uh, wanted to introduce myself. My name is Stephen Eturium, part of the leadership team over at Faith Church over in West Covina. And uh, we've been part of ARC for a couple of years now. And the relationships that we've gotten to develop as a, as a result of being connected with other churches that are pressing forward, that are moving forward, has just really been phenomenal. And so I uh, really hope that you guys have experienced that over the past couple of days here. And um, as the conference is drawing to a close... Um, but you know what? We've saved the best for last here today. And uh, so excited to get to hear from Pastor Harrison. Uh, he's lead pastor along with his wife, Bethany, over there at uh, Cottonwood um, over in Los Alamitos. And uh, so let's give a hand to Pastor Harrison. Everybody good? Can you, all, can you hear me even up the back? Can you, can you hear me okay? Sweet. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. There's a lot of different app sessions that are on right now, and out of all of them, you chose me. So uh, thanks. Um, I'm humbled for that. And uh, I'm grateful to be able to open God's Word with you and uh, share a little bit with you about something I'm very passionate about, something that, that uh, our church is very passionate about. And, and as was introduced, uh, my name's Harrison, Harrison Conley. Uh, I've been married to the same woman uh, for 13 years next week. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And she's given me two, uh, three beautiful little boys. Um, my oldest will be 10, uh, October 15th, and then a seven-year-old, and then a two-year-old. And uh, life is full and loud, uh, <laughs> but it's good. And uh, I've been in full-time ministry for 15 years um, at Cottonwood Church. Uh, my parents started our church 34, 35 years ago, August 35 years ago. And uh, I've been there my whole life. And uh, I, love, I love the church, not just Cottonwood Church, but the capital C church and what God's doing in the earth. And, uh, you know, any chance I get an opportunity to speak to anybody, it's a great privilege. But anytime I, I get to sit with pastors and leaders and those of you that are on the front line, uh, the movers and the shakers, I, I really covet these moments. Um, I don't take them lightly. So thanks for being here. And uh, I... I I believe that God can do something in the few minutes that we share together. Uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will take you down your own little personal rabbit trails and that at some point you stop listening to me and you start listening to him and you get some thoughts that you can employ in your church and with your teams. And, and that and this whole topic that we're going to cover today, um, building a culture of unity in, in a society that's diverse, in a society that's divided, um, is obviously not something we can, can solve in 45 minutes. Um, but I do believe we can have some starting points. And uh, this is something that our church is very passionate about. Just a little history on our church. Like I said, it's 35 years old. Um, but our church is the most diverse church I, I've ever seen. I have the great opportunity to, to travel quite a bit, but there's no place like home. And when I stand on our pulpit, it's equal parts looking out white, black, Hispanic, and Asian. And, and I, I love it. It's, it's a picture of heaven. And we make a point uh, of most weekends to acknowledge that as well. Literally from the platform, we'll call out and have everybody look around and say, hey, around you is diversity, diversity of age. Uh, we believe in all generations having a part. You know, you look at scripture. 
Uh, God's the God of three generations, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we believe that Abraham is resource in Isaac, and Isaac is released in Jacob, and Jacob is revering Abraham, that everybody has a part. And uh, we preach that, and we say, look at the, the uh, diversity of age, but then we say, look at the diversity uh, of skin color and ethnicity and, and backgrounds, and we acknowledge it, and we do our very best to steward it, and we celebrate what God's doing uh, in our church. Uh, it's one of the, the fingerprints of God on, on our house, and so we feel a responsibility to uh, passionately embrace some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, today. And so what I want to do, just to sort of give us a little bit of framework, is, is we're going to read from the scripture. We're going to start there. And the reason for that uh, is because if the rest of the message, the rest of our talk goes downhill, at least we started uh, with the word. Um, <laughs> and, and the truth is, I, I, in and of my own self, don't, don't have the answers from this. I'm 34 years old, white man from Southern California. i got a very limited perspective. But as we search the scriptures, um, I believe that we can find some starting points as we look at Jesus as our example. So that's where we're going to start. We're starting scriptures, and I realize I'm talking to a room full of pastors and leaders, so I'm going to do my very best not to preach to you. Uh, that's not my goal or my intent at all, uh, but I do want to share some thoughts. I'm going to start with the scripture, and then I want to look at the, the historical context of what we're reading, create a bit of a framework, and then get into some practical. Does that sound all right? So if you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it with me. Uh, if you've got your phone, you can find uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. I want to start there. And Read a familiar story, just a, a few verses of scripture here, but I think there's some, some real truth we can pull from it. Luke's gospel, chapter, chapter 7, and um, beginning of verse 1, it says this, Now when he, speaking of Jesus, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered to Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom you should do this, he, he, he's deserving, for he loves our nation. He's built a synagogue. Verse 6, then Jesus went with them. If you've got a pen, um, maybe you want to write down that phrase. It's really important. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent some friends to him, saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I didn't even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word. That's another important phrase here. But, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and he turned around, and he said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, they found the servant well, or healed, who had been sick. There's quite a few things we, we could pull from this, but, but I want to initially start by just understanding that there's some stark lines of, of division and difference that we see initially in this text as we look at some of the main characters that emerge. You've got on one side of the spectrum uh, a Roman centurion, and then on the other side of the spectrum, I wish I had a whiteboard, I could really put this out visually for you, I'm a visual learner, but you've got the, the Roman centurion on the other side of the spectrum, on the other side of the divide, you've got these Jewish elders. And as we think in terms of historical context of the first century, you've got this incredibly fractured and divided society, uh, racially divided, religion divided, uh, ideology, difference in, in morals and, and politics. Right? So you've got these two entities, these two groups. So to start with the Roman centurion, right? Uh, racially, he, he's Gentile. Worse than that, in this case, he's, he's a Roman. For an occupation, he's a, he's a soldier, right? He's part of an occupying 
force when it came to his politics. He's a part of a dictatorship, right? Caesar is boss. When it came to religion, he would have ascribed himself to polytheism, right? He would have served a multiplicity of, of gods. When, when it came to his uh, moral and ethical framework and fabric of life, he would have subscribed to, to hedonism, right? The, what, what feels good to me is right. So that's one side of the spectrum. You look on the other side of this spectrum, you've got the Jewish elders that come to Jesus. And you look at them racially, they're, they're Jewish. When you look at them occupationally, they're, they're religious workers. When you think about the, the state of their society, they're living in an oppressed society. They're under martial law. When it came to their politics, they were part of a monarchy. At this point in time, Herod is king over Israel. When it came to religion, they're monotheistic, right? They believe in the one true God. When it came to their moral and ethical fabric of life, uh, they would have subscribed to the Old Testament law, to, to the Ten Commandments, right? And they've added 603 laws to that, those original ten. So they're subscribed to these 613 laws. So you've got as far as you can get from each other, two people, two groups, on opposite ends of the spectrum. And in that historical culture, in that context, tensions are incredibly high. We've got uncivil unrest where you've got the zealots from, from the Jewish side coming over trying to kill the Romans. On, on this side, you've got violent outbreaks in public spaces. You've got the Romans that are taking Jewish citizens and they are publicly executing them. Things are, are crazy. And you read in the story, and it seems like this Roman seems to be a, a good man, and he's done some good things. He's built a synagogue in the, the city. And, and, and you got to kind of look through what's unwritten there. you got to look at it through the filter of, of historical context. And you think, okay, well, he's done some good things. That's, that's good leadership, this quid pro quo. You know, I'm going to do a little bit so I can keep the peace. And the same point, these Jewish elders, they're going to Jesus on, on behalf of him, right? Like, let's keep this, this centurion, this guy that's in leadership and authority over us, let's keep him placated because if he gets angry— like, like he might start ruling a little bit different. He might have more of an iron fist. Maybe he gets upset. Maybe he gets replaced. They put somebody else in here that, that's way worse than him. And you see this kind of battle going back and forth from people on opposite ends of the spectrum. So you've got two groups of people, opposite sides of the racial, religious, and political spectrum. Yet we see them in the midst of their society, different sides, different stories come together in this place that ends in healing. How, how does that happen? Jesus. Right? Jesus. Again, I understand I'm speaking to a room full of pastors and, and leaders. But as you look at the historical context of our text, as you look at this first century fractured society and you put it juxtaposed to our, our current and our present day society, the, the social separation, the division, and the discord, it's, it's, eerily, uh, it's eerily similar. You can almost lay them on top of each other. Obviously, we're not under martial law, thank God. There's not that going on. But things and people in our current society are, are separated, um, are fragmented. And I believe that the same answer that brought healing, that brought restoration in our story, is actually the same answer and the same agent that brings healing and restoration in our current society, our present reality. Again, Jesus. And here's the premise I want to work from. If Jesus brings people together, people on opposite sides of the spectrum, opposite sides of the divide, if Jesus brings people together, then I need to bring people together, right? Like as pastors and leaders, we have this responsibility to bring Jesus, to bring healing to society, to bring healing to what was once divided. And of course, the question becomes, well, how do we do that? Practically, what does this look like? How do we follow the example of Jesus? What is it that he does in the passage that we can model, that we can put into application in our, in our own lives? And I want to just maybe push the pause button there for a second. There's something important in what I, what I said. 
how do we do this and put it into practice in our, in our own lives? Because it's one thing to stand on the pulpit. It's another thing to, to preach it out. But then when it comes to us living that out, we have to start that. Our congregations and, and the teams that we lead will never do or be a part of something that we ourselves are not a part of. And we ourselves are not currently living out. That's where it starts. It starts with us taking personal responsibility, coming from this present, uh, this premise that Jesus lives in me. Therefore, I represent Jesus everywhere that I go. And I have a part to play when it comes to bringing peace to society, when it comes to bringing relationships to a place of peace with each other and a place of peace with God. You know, over the last couple of years, um, I've heard a lot of pastors say as, as they're addressing sort of the, the different tensions in our nation is that, you know what, people just need to hear the gospel message. And yes, oh my gosh, absolutely people need to hear the gospel message. There cannot be restoration and there can't be transformation without the hearing of the gospel message. But that's got to go hand in hand with Christians living the gospel message. People can't just hear it. They have to see it and experience Jesus. The Apostle Paul called that life, he called it being an ambassador of Christ. If you're taking notes, you can write down this passage. I want to read you another uh, scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through, through 21. Paul speaks directly to this, and in case you're wondering, this is my favorite passage of Scripture in all the Bible. But 2 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 17, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old is gone, everything becomes new. But he starts to, if anyone's in Christ, so if you're in Christ, you better pay attention, because what he's about to say applies to you. Verse 18, he says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, and as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And in verse 21, for God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I want you to just capture the full picture here. Paul starts by saying, if you're in Christ... Pay attention because these next verses, they speak to you. And in verse 18 through 20, he talks about this idea. And again, I know I'm talking to pastors and leaders. I know you know this, but let's create a framework. That essentially there had existed this fracture between us and God. Paul said that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus. So in other words, there was this fracture. There was this divide. We were on opposite ends from God. But now because of Jesus, our pontiff, our bridge builder, we are now reconnected to God. We are now right and in reconciled relationship with him. And Paul says that the result of that is that now we become ambassadors of Christ. We become a reflection, a representation of Jesus to the world around us. And that same gift of reconciliation that Jesus has brought to us, we now get to bring to a world and to a society around us, to our sphere of influence. And that word reconciliation, that gift, that ministry of reconciliation that we're a part of, in the original language, it literally means to win back to friendliness. It means to, to bring back into harmony, to restore back to its original intent. So the idea being, grand picture here, 30,000 foot view, is that as we go into our world, as we go into our society, as we preach from our pulpits, we're a representation of Jesus. And as people see Jesus in us, we're then able to help bring people back to a place of harmony, help bring relationships back to to wholeness, ultimately pointing people to the Savior, pointing people to the God of love, helping people come to this place of peace with each other and peace with God. So does that make sense? You follow me in this picture? Okay, so back to the original question. If Jesus brought people together, 
And if I'm an ambassador of Christ, what's my role? What's my responsibility? What does it look like for me to bring reconciliation and bring people together? What is it that I can learn from Jesus' example here in this passage and practically put into application in my life uh, that helps build a culture of unity? Um, Let me just simplify it. I know we only got a short amount of time. Let me just give you two thoughts. And again, as I said at the outset, I realize this is not a topic that gets fully covered or fully fleshed out or or gets solved in 45 minutes. Uh, I am not so naive. But again, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit takes you down some rabbit trails and gives you a starting point. But I want to just give you two, two practical things that we can do to help build a culture of unity in a society that's divided and oftentimes in a church that's represented by diversity. So here's the, the first thing. If we want to build a culture of uni- uh, unity, we need to learn to journey with people. I'm just going to call it that, journey with people. Um, in our text, we see the Jewish elders. They come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. In verse 6, after some pleading from the elders, we read that simple statement. And Jesus went with them. Jesus went with them. Notice the simplicity there. He went with them. Notice what he didn't do. Uh, Jesus didn't give them a lecture. They came pleading, saying, this man's deserving. Jesus could have given them a lecture. They said, no, no, on your best day, your, your good works, they're like filthy rags. And God's grace is a gift. It's not, it's not earned. It's given to you. That God's not manipulated. God's not coerced into doing your bidding. God is moved by himself. God's moved by his love for humanity. Jesus could have lectured them, but he didn't. Jesus could have leveraged the situation. He could have said, look, guys, if I help you out with this, if I go with you, you know what? You're going to leave me and my disciples alone because you've been harassing us and you've been stirring up the crowds against us. And so, you know what? If I help you, you're going to leave us alone for a little bit. But he, he didn't. Jesus went with them, no strings attached. Jesus went, no agenda, except to help somebody that was in need. So I want you to see this. Jesus looks past religious, racial, and political affiliations and sees an individual. Jesus saw someone in need, someone that needed help, so he went. Let me, let me say it like this. The centurion's misery made him the object of Jesus' mercy. Right. Jesus could have, as far as I'm concerned, care less about what this guy stood for, what his affiliations were. Jesus was more concerned with the man. He was more concerned with the centurion and his sick servant. And as you read through the Gospels, this is what we love about Jesus, right? That he's not afraid to journey with people. He's not afraid to touch the lives of people, regardless of where they fell on the social spectrum. Right, you, you read in one passage, he's having dinner with the religious elites. The next passage, he's calling a tax collector out of a tree, and he's inviting himself over for dinner. You read that Jesus is called the friend of sinners, the friend of drunkards, right? He's hanging out with, with prostitutes. In John 4, he's hanging out at a Samaritan well, and he's having a conversation with a Gentile woman that's known for her loose morals. And the disciples walk up, and they're like, what are you doing here, and what are we doing here, and what is going on? Right? Jesus touched people that were different than him. Look at the disciples. I mean, them in and of the, the, the 12. Like they're a bunch of teenage sort of religious rejects. And even within the 12, you got people that would have been at each other's throat. You got Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot that was out to kill Romans. And then you've got Matthew the tax collector who's in the pocket of the Romans stealing from his own people within Jesus' own 12. These guys are hammering at each other. You want to talk about diversity? Jesus broke all kinds of social stereotypes. He spent time with all different types of people. Jesus touched the lives of people that looked and thought and acted differently than he did. He saw past social differences and he focused value on the person, on the individual. God's love doesn't play sides. Again, I'm talking to a room of pastors and leaders. Let me just remind us. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit. 
God's love in us does not get to play sides. It goes beyond social affiliations. It goes beyond labels. I love what Pastor Miles said this morning about that person that you have in your mind. Take that label off and put neighbor on it. God's love doesn't play sides. It goes beyond a little checkbox that says Democrat or Republican, right? And I think we can learn something from this. God's love goes past those affiliations and goes straight to the individual. I could learn something from this. But what does it mean practically to follow the example of Jesus? What does it mean practically to journey with people? I think it, I think it starts here. I, I think it starts with us as the leaders reassessing the priority that we put on our own social opinions and our own social commentaries. Now, now hear me, I didn't say we need to get rid of our social opinions and our social commentaries. Uh, quite, the different, uh, quite the opposite. I feel like we need to be very informed about what's facing our congregation, about what's going on in our society. I, I think we need to you know, have honest conversations with people that we trust. I think we need to continue to low, uh, grow, and I think we need to continue to learn. I think we need to be on our knees seeking God for wisdom and counsel and make our stand from there. But hear me, the moment we, we put a higher value or higher priority on our own social predispositions and our own opinions and predilections when it comes to social life, If we let those things keep us from doing life with and journeying alongside individuals that look and act and think differently than we do, we've lost the plot. Like in a big way, we've lost the plot. Jesus went with them. He wasn't on the same social page as the Jewish elders. He didn't have the same view that they did on God or or the law, but it didn't keep him from journeying with them. Jesus wasn't on the same social page as the Roman centurion, not in the least, but it didn't keep him from going to him. And in like fashion, as ambassadors of Christ, given this ministry of reconciliation, we have to see past attitudes and actions and affiliations and see individuals. And obviously this applies outside the four walls of a building, but but perhaps it implies even more so within the relationships we have in the church, especially in a diverse church. I don't know what your church is like, but from our pulpit, like I said, you look out. Man, it's a picture of heaven. It's, it's, it's crazy how diverse it is. And I feel like in this season of our nation, we need unity in the house more than ever before. Right? Outside, we, we all know this. You don't need me to tell you. Society is divided in a lot of different ways, perhaps more so than in a long time. But we can't allow the outside storm to become the inside storm. Because it's never the outside storm that sinks the ship. It's once the outside storm becomes the inside storm that the ship gets sunk. We need unity now more than ever. So how do we accomplish that in a diverse society? How do we accomplish that in a diverse church? By journeying together. By journeying together. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. And and by the way, the church at Ephesus was the most diverse of all the New Testament churches. He wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning of verse 1, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that phrase... It's a really special phrase in the original language. Again, I'm not trying to preach to you, but I just think it's so important that you see this. Bearing with one another in love. In the Greek, it literally means to be patient with somebody that has different opinions and actions of those of your own. And what's neat about it is it actually has an action point that's associated with this phrase in the original language. You know what that action point is? Listening. Not debating. Not trying to convince someone to come to your side of the opinion, your side of the argument. It's, it's listening. 
it's this understanding that no one person, myself included, has the full perspective and the complete picture on life or on social issues. It's the idea that since you don't have the full picture, and since I don't have the full picture, we're going to bear with one another. We're going to be patient with each other. We're going to assume the best about each other. And when our worldviews come into conflict, we're going to seek understanding together. We're going to go to the scriptures together. We're going to listen to each other, and we're going to converse, and we're going to grow in our understanding together. Why? Because above all things, we value unity. But that's not always easy to do, right? Especially in a very diverse congregation. If I stood on our platform and I made a political statement, I would alienate half of our crowd. So how do you do this? It takes maturity. Right? It takes maturity to bear in love with somebody else, to be patient with those that have different opinions and actions of our own. So as we bear together in love, as we journey together, we got to remember it's important to understand that love doesn't always have to end in agreement. Right? The moment we equate those two of meaning the same thing, we're in a lot of trouble. And that's what the world's trying to do right now. Love means agreement, and agreement means love. No, it doesn't. There are people in my family, literally people I would lay down my life for, people that I love with all my heart, that see the world very differently than me, that would vote very differently than me. But yet I would drop everything at a moment's notice to help them if they were in need. We don't agree on everything, but man, I love them. Love and agreement don't end the same. Not always. They're not the same thing. So what do we do when our worldviews come into conflict and we continue to love, but we're not in agreement? What do we do? Well, you control what you can control. You guard your heart and you assume the best about the other person. And you continue to walk in love. And friend, that's what it means to journey with each other. Why do we do this? Why, why do we go the extra mile? Why do we fight to stay patient with each other? Because we need unity right now. We need unity in the church. We need unity in this, this nation, not division. God breathes on unity. God blesses you. Where brethren dwell together in you, there God commands a blessing, right? I'll never forget um, the weekend following our past presidential election in our church. It was a catalytic moment for us. Like I said, our, our, our congregation is literally split down the middle. And half of the room was elated. The other half of the room was, was terrified and confused and, and afraid of what, what was to come. And we did something interesting. From the platform, we had everybody stand up and we addressed the range of emotions that were in the room. We didn't just say, it's going to be great. We said, no, there's a lot of people in here, and you need to know that the person on your left or the person on your right might be terrified of what's about to happen. And we linked arms together, and we prayed, and we came together in unity, saying that no matter who's in the Oval Office, God's on his throne. And we're going to continue to bear with one another. We're going to continue to seek understanding together. And we prayed together. And, and can I just tell you, something supernatural happened in that space and in that moment. And our church, man, it's crazy how diverse we are. Yeah, but we're one family. We're one family because we've decided that we're in this together, that we're going to make it through, that, that, that no matter what you look like or where you've come from or what your experience is or what your age is, we're going to journey together in Jesus, that together we're going to bring a living Jesus to a dying world. And I want to speak even prophetically over your church. This is not just a cottonwood thing. This is a capital C church. This is a kingdom thing. I believe in all my heart that in this season of our nation, it's going to be the church and the unity that's seen in the church that's going to draw people in. They're going to be drawn by the love that we share for each other inside and outside the four walls. And people are going to come into our building and they're going to get saved by the drove because they see Jesus in us. Because of the unity that we display. Church is going to be that city that's set on a hill that can't be 
ignored. How does that happen? By journeying together. Um, the second, second thought that I want to share with you, the second way we build a culture of union. Is this okay so far? Is this making sense? Okay. The, the second thought I want to share, let's just simply call it this. We need to understand the power of words. Understand the power of words. The latter half of the text that we read initially, we see this exchange between Jesus and the centurion's friends. Right Through his friends, the centurion essentially says to Jesus, look, just say the word. You don't even have to come into my house. Just, just say the word. And I know that my servant will be healed. You see, the centurion, he understood the power of words. And, and let me just propose something to you. If there's enough power in words to bring physical healing, uh, perhaps there's enough power in words to bring social healing as well. Right? And, and you look at what Jesus said. You, you notice he never even said, at least it's not recorded, be healed. Which is another message all into itself, that God's power is not limited. But do you notice what is recorded? The only thing that Jesus says, verse 9, I've never seen such great faith, not even in Israel. Now catch this, the only recorded words of Jesus, the Bible says he turns to the crowd around him. A crowd which, mind you, is going to be completely Jewish that's following him. Jesus turns to a completely Jewish crowd, and the only words that are recorded were words that highlighted the good in the man who was the very instrument and object of Israel's oppression. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Like, are you catching this, right? What is it that we can learn from that? That being an ambassador of Christ, being an agent of uh, reconciliation, it means that our words need to highlight the good in those that look and act and think differently than us. Power in words. Anybody can be negative, right? Like, it's really easy to be critical. All of us are our church leaders. We, we, we know this, right? We hear this. It's really easy to be negative. It's really easy to be critical. I mean, listen, look, look at our news cycle. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on, right? It doesn't matter which news outlet you look at. There's never positive things to be said. It's really easy to be negative. It's really easy to be critical. But as ambassadors of Christ, we need to fight to find and to speak the good about those that are different than us. Paul said in Philippians 4, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure and lovely and of a good report, focus on, think about, obsess over, speak those things. Right? We have to be aware of the power of words. Words can build, words can divide. Oftentimes in church world, we hear, we hear things like this, us versus them. No, no, no. We need to speak language that says we, we, together. We're a part of this together. Our words can build or they can divide. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 15, 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue, it breaks the spirit. James chapter 3, verse 4, it talks about the tongue being like a rudder on a ship, right? That, that little rudder, it sets the trajectory, it sets the course of the ship. The same way, your tongue, the words that you speak, it sets the trajectory, it sets the course of your life. Perhaps it could set the course of your nation, your society, your congregation, so what, as leaders and pastors, are we using our words to do? Because words have the power to bring health or life or strife or division. And listen, in our church, we've just said, look, we're going to use our words to build. Amongst our teams, our leaders, we say, hey, as leaders in this house, we're going to use words that, that build. We're going to choose to edify each other, to love each other, to highlight the good in each other. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in the book of Romans. He's writing to a a group of Christians that are in a very secular society of Rome. 
verse number eight, Paul says this, Oh, no man, anything except to love one another. Verse 10, he goes on to say, Love does no harm to a neighbor. We learned this morning. I already quoted Pastor Miles talking about neighbor being everybody around us. So let's put this in the context of words, in the context of what we're talking about. I'm convinced that number one, that the most practical way that we can show people the love of God, the way that people experience God's love through us, are through our words. It's the most practical. It's what's happening all the time. We show people God's love through our words. Yeah, we do actions. We do this. But ultimately, first and foremost, people will hear it. We share. We show God's love through our, our words. And Paul said in Romans that, oh, no man, anything except to love one another. Now, now I love this. Again, in the context of words. That word love in the original language, it's in the perpetual form. It's in the infinitive form. It means love and then love some more. And when you get done doing that, love again. And when you get done doing that, keep on loving. It, it means never stop loving. It's perpetual in nature. Um, let me maybe try and paint it like this. Uh, in, in high school, uh, I, played, I played basketball. And, and I was far more of a physical specimen th- than I am standing before you today. And, and I won't say I'm a great athlete, but I was fairly proficient in, in my skill set. And I still like to think that I'm a good athlete. So occasionally I'll go out with some friends like on a Monday night and play basketball. Um, the only thing is, every time I go out to play with the friends, another one of our pastors on the team comes and he plays with us. His name is Pastor Kenneth. And, and he played in the D-League. He played in the Rockets organization. And it just so happens that I'm the one that's closest in height and, and build to him. So I always get stuck guarding him. Right? <laughs> now, now I, like I said, I, I'm athletic. I did okay in high school. So I feel like I'm in good shape and I can keep up with him. But Pastor Kenneth... He's perpetual. He's a perpetual mover. Like he never, ever stops running. From the moment the game starts to the game ends, he doesn't stop running. Even when he doesn't have the ball, right? Like he's running. He's running off his screens and he's setting screens and and he's cutting through the lane. But like I said, I'm in good shape. So for like three quarters, I can hang with him. He's not scoring a lot. But by the time we get around to the end of the game, fourth quarter, right? Like his perpetual movement has broken down my defense and he'll drop like 30 points on me in eight minutes. And, and I'm like, thanks, Pastor Ken, right? But here, here's the point I'm making. His perpetual movement broke down my defense. Good. And, and when it comes to our words, if we keep loving each other, if we keep loving society, it begins to break down society's walls of defense, their walls of offense. If we keep loving people, in that infinitive form, if we're perpetual in our love, if we love people through our words, we become really effective agents of reconciliation. And I pray that we'd be known as people that talk about what we're for, not always what we're against. Right? Like, I, I want people to, to know that this guy, that me, that, that he's about grace. And he's about love. And he's about second chance. He's about compassion. Man, that's that Jesus guy. He's always talking about the goodness of God. I want to be known what I'm for, not, not what I'm against. I don't want to be known as one of those picket sign holders. Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be known for words that condemn. Right? Like, if God wanted to condemn the world, he would have sent a judge. But he didn't. God loves the world. For God so loved the world. World, cosmos, is where we get our, our pillars of society. God loves people. God loves society. God didn't want to condemn the world. He wanted to save the world. So he sent Jesus, right? For God did not condemn the world. No. He sent Jesus so that the world through him might live. That, that, that's what this is all about. And I want to be known by what I'm for. I want my words to be encapsulated with love. Romans 13 verse 10, Paul said, Love does no harm to a neighbor. 
I, I wonder how often we've unintentionally harmed others with the words that we've spoken. How often, even in our churches and amongst our teams, we've stifled or broken the spirit of unity with our, our words. Let me go back to the, the election cycle. Um, post-election, I was hearing in our church, literally with my ears I was hearing, I was reading on social media, people making comments like, oh, they voted for Trump, racist. Oh, they voted for Clinton, not a Christian. And, you know, and it's just like, I had to get up and address this and say, stop it. This is not who we are. We're not going to use our words to tear down. We're not going to use our words to draw lines of difference or, or distinction. Not like We're trying to build with our words. We're, we're trying to build people. We're trying to build unity. We're going to be perpetual in our love, speaking words that love people back to life. Like, I want to be someone that's known, that's been with Jesus that loves like Jesus loves, even when it's hard, where we highlight the good in those that act and think and do differently than we do. I want to understand the, the power of words and use them to set society on a, on a new course, a course that's defined by, by unity, a course that's defined by reconciliation. We help bring people back to that place of peace with each other and peace with God. God's plan is for unity. God's plan is for all generations and all ethnicities to be working together with one common cause, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to bring a living Jesus to a dying world around us. So let me just real quick simplify what we've talked about, give you the cliff notes just so we are all on the same page. How do we build a culture of unity? Why don't we journey with each other? We journey with people. Paul said in Ephesians 4, we bear with one another in love, in love. Second way we build a culture of unity is we understand the power of words. Romans 13, Paul says you're to be perpetual in love. Remember, the most practical way we show God's love is through our, our words. Love, love. What I love about that is that when we love people, when we're journeying with people, we're bearing with one another love, that when we understand the power of our words and we're expressing God's love through our words perpetually, that's when we're most like Jesus. Right? First John 4, 8, for God is love. So here's the simplified message. Do the next thing that you do in love. The next words that you speak, do them in love. Next conversation you have, have it in love. The next thought that you think, think it in love. And if it's not in love, take that thought captive and try again. The next action you take, act out in love. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you fulfill the law. Micah 6, 8, what's required of us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. So let's endeavor as pastors and leaders to model this in our own life. Let's endeavor to instill this into our congregants, into the teams that we lead. That we're going to journey with people. That we're going to love people back to life with our words. That we're going to build unity. And that through Jesus, we're going to bring reconciliation. Is that all right? Can, can, I, can I just pray for us real quick and then pass it back over to Steve, right? Yeah. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've equipped us to do this. Thank you that you've not left us alone to figure out life, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for every leader that's represented in this room. Father, I, I thank you that even as I've been sharing, I know your Holy Spirit's been at work taking us down those little rabbit holes, giving us practical first steps to take. Because at the end of the day, Father, we're passionate about people. We're passionate about your church. We're passionate about the things that you're passionate about. And 
we realize that, Father, you've created us all different, but yet at the same point, we're all equal. And together, Father, we want to bring a living representation of your son to a world and to a society that is dying around us. So, Father, help us in our churches. Help us even in our own families and in our own lives to build and imbibe this spirit of unity. Because we know that, Father, where there's unity, you command a blessing. And I pray, Father, that our churches would be a, just an image of unity, that people in the community would see the love that we have for each other and be drawn in and ultimately be drawn to your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for all that's been shared over this conference, all the different sessions. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would seal the things that have been spoken over us. Seal them so the devil can't steal them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hey, can we thank... Pastor Harrison, would you be open to answering any questions that people might have? I, I'll do my best. <laughs> awesome. We want to open it up for uh, for questions here. If uh, you wanted to maybe ask some questions about how do you how do you do this within within your church context, and maybe some challenges that you're facing around this idea of unity within a divided society. Any questions out there? So, um, how how would I define diversity? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely not just uh, eth- uh, ethnically. It's not just different colors of skin. Uh, obviously, um, I, I think even looking in, in our in our text, uh, some of the things I, I listed, I, I want to see our church filled with people that have all different like. At least they come in and they have a different ideology, a different viewpoint on God, a different experience. I think everything from different different jobs in the workforce, uh, different um, uh, background, different experience, different ways of life, different church backgrounds, different denominational backgrounds. And we come together and we have this, this culture where we're teaching, hey, no matter where you come from or what you've done, uh, Jesus is at the top. Jesus is first and he's foremost in this place. And, and, and I'm just of the opinion, if Jesus becomes first in people's lives, no matter what their story is or what their background is or what they come in thinking initially, that if Jesus is first, everything else will find its place. Um, let, let me maybe put it this way. Uh, I go to the chiropractor pretty regularly. And the chiropractor spends an inordinate amount of time on my top vertebrae. And I'm like, hey, like my lower back hurts. Thanks for, you know, doing the adjustment up here. But like, can you? And I go, why are you spending so much time up here? And, and he's just of this, like this frame of mind that says the, the, this, this, that if the top vertebrae is in its proper place, the rest of the nerve endings and the rest of the spine will follow suit. 
And, and the same thing is true in church. And no matter the, the backgrounds, and I mean, you, each of us probably has a different definition when it comes to diversity. Um, and each would probably be valid to some extent. But, but if we preach Jesus, and if Jesus has top priority in each of our lives, man, everything else will find its place. Everything else will find its proper order. It's Jesus in the beginning, it's Jesus in the middle, it's Jesus in the end, and everything else will take care of itself. Um, so I don't have a great answer to that. Yeah, there are cliques. And I mean, it's really easy to, to sit and get in a circle with people that look like me and, and are the same political persuasion as me, that like the same sports as me. Um, but I need to force myself because I realize that in a lot of sense, variety is the spice of life and that I don't have the full picture when it comes to society. I don't have the full picture when it comes to, to anything. And so the more I can get in contact, the more I can rub so, uh, shoulders with and, and iron can sharpen iron with people that look and think and act differently than me. I feel like I'm more well-rounded. As long as Jesus is at the top, man, I, I figure we're doing something okay. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, you talked about being um, in, that we need to be informed to know what's in front of our congregation. Can you say as a pastor, where do you go to get your information? I feel overwhelmed at what's out there. Yeah. And so I just, I don't even know. Um, not just Fox News. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so how do we be? How do we be informed? Where, where do we go to? Um, I've got multiple news apps on my devices, whether it's, it's CNN or the BBC or Fox News, and I'll, I'll look at a variety of different things. Um, but, but I think perhaps the best way to be informed is I just rub shoulders with people in the congregation. I go, "What's going on in your world right now?" And we've got outreach that goes in all different places. And it's like, what, what are you facing? What's going on? What, what do you think? And you can't have that conversation with everybody. Um, you know, you need to have it with trusted people that you, you really value their opinion. And, and they're not going to take what you say um, out of context. And you're able to have that kind of freedom of, of expression. Um, but, yeah, I, I wouldn't go to just one particular news outlet. I, I would go to multiple. And, and I just think. You do the very best you can to have, have an idea of balance. And then at the same point, like, thank God for his Holy Spirit, right? Like, and we have discernment and we have common sense. I feel like common sense just doesn't exist very much in the world we live in today. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the word of God is my final authority, right? Like it, everything has to come into submission to God's word. He's exalted his word even above his name, it says. And, and, and so what society says, what, what news outlets say, like at the end of the day, it's got to come under submission to God's word. So I, I don't have the best answer for you. You probably already knew what I was going to say anyway. But, um, yeah, I think that the more well-rounded you can, you can pull your, your news from, the better you're out, better off you are. Yes. So we're planting in January in a very diverse area as well, and our launch team is already very diverse um, in every way. Yeah. I'm wondering, what do you do to celebrate the different cultures? And like musically, would you try doing different musical styles? Um, Yeah, I mean, you can, certainly. And I think it's going to look different for every church. But how do you you celebrate the diversity? Um, I, I said at the outset, even one of the very practical ways that we do it from our church is every Sunday I stand up and I will say, look at the room around you look in front of you, behind you, like, and I'll call out that diversity and say, hey, this has got thumbprint on our church. This is a grace that we need to steward, that we're responsible to steward, and let's celebrate it. Um, I think as well being really intentional about the faces that you throw up on, uh, on church news or on videos, right? And not just young people, but, but multiple generations, uh, 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 I think as well, eth- uh, ethnically, uh, different skin colors on the st- together. Um, I think from the platform, uh, who, who, who's preaching, 
uh, we have a, a preaching team, which is really cool. And multiple, we have a, a general manager is Korean. Uh, Pastor Kenneth that I mentioned is African-American man. And, you know, then you've got me and my father who, who are white. And you, you just get different variety that the worship teams is made up of all different ethnicities. And I think you just you call it out and you acknowledge it and you celebrate it. And um, I, I, all of our teams, they um, we talk about this. So, like, if someone is starting small groups. Um, they're going, hey, small group leaders, you can't just have people that look like you. You can't have people that are the same age as you. Hey, you're overall the greeters at the door. Cool. You need to have different ages. You need to have different different looks, different people. And I think just being as intentional about it as you can and then calling out and celebrating it every chance you get. That, hey, this is a picture of heaven. This is what heaven's going to look like. You know, so hopefully that, that gives you a couple of practicals. Yes, sir. So I feel like the diversity of the country in many ways is led to some of the greatest results, um, but also led to some of the greatest challenges. Sure. Right? We deal with problems that have never been faced in the history of the world because we have more people in a more diverse country than we have ever been established with more freedom than ever. So, in your mind, what would the ideal church look like in the future? Like, where are we going? And what would, like, I think we have a lot of ability to look back and say, like, this has been really hard, we're like, we've had some great battles, we've won, what's the next one, where are we going, and what would the church look like in the midst of that? Oh, man, that's a loaded question. Um, um, sorry, and I, I forgot even the, the last question I was asked. You, you asked about songs you sing. Sorry, let, let me just get that, and then I'll answer your question. I forgot about that. Um, I think you can at different times, but I, I think it's really important that church picks a, a particular stream and stay in that, and at different times to bring stuff in. We've never catered in our church. Like I said, we're diverse. We've never catered to one particular group as far as sound. We've always just been one sound. And, and then the, the people that are represented that are leading us are, are very diverse in that. Um, and so I think, yeah, there are moments where we will we'll throw some gospel music. There's moments where we'll have some Latin flair in our music. Um, but that's not the regular. The regular is just kind of we have an established sound, and that's kind of the lane that we run in. So sorry, I forgot to answer that part of it. Um, oh, man, what does the church like look like for the future? Um, yeah, it is. And there's a lot of different angles to take it from, from what we're talking about today, man. I hope that the church continues to grow more and more diverse. Um, I think that's what our our nation needs. I I think actually too, it's, it's imperative that the church gets more and more diverse. If you think about technology, um, when you think about the fact that each one of our congregation members at any point in time on any given day during the week can listen to whoever they want to listen to or watch whoever they want to watch on, on podcast, whatever preacher they feel like they connect with. Um, I think it's, it's really important that we have diversity, even in our teaching. Um, I think it's really important that we have diversity in, um, like I said, all, all the, the different vantage uh, viewpoints that people can see. Um, but I think if we just will endeavor to build a church that, number one, people can have an encounter with God. They can come in, they know that they can have a sense of community and that they, they can come in and go, I'm proud of my church because of what, it, what it's doing in the community yeah. and outreach. I, I think that's, that's where we should be heading. That's where we should be going. I don't have all the answers to what you're saying. I've got, I got my, like, my own opinions on it, but in the context of what we're talking about today, I think, man, yeah. Well, I like a follow-up. Uh, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. It's like the heart of white conservative. very, like, everybody looks Yep. How do you instill diversity in a church like that where there's simply, you're not drawing from the city, you're not drawing from, you know, 
some of the more urban areas, or on the flip side, I know the low church, or I'm playing the church in Seattle, uh-huh. where it's completely the opposite. Yeah. You know, so how do I how do I bring in the mindset from the other side, the others, uh, into a church setting where it's honored and it's received properly without kind of like feeling forced or artificial? Yeah. Um, thank God for His Holy Spirit. Man, at the end of the day, real, real recognizes real, and people are going to come where they're going to have an experience with Jesus. And, and I mean, I, I can't say why our church is diverse like it is. I think part of it has to do with our location in the world. We're right on the border of Orange County and L.A. County. In five minutes, one way, um, you, you know, you've got the poor, the poor five minutes, the other way, you've got the rich, the rich. Like, I have the distinction of being the youth pastor that, that had a kid come one night that stole a car to get to church, right? Like, and then he was sitting next to the kid that his dad bought him a Cadillac on, on, his, on his 16th birthday. Um, and so part of it is where you are geographically, right? Um, yeah, it's a funny story. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's like this range of emotions. You're so proud he did everything he could to get to church. But then on the other hand, you're like, these things don't balance out. Um, <laughs> you know, so if, if, if you're in the middle of, uh, of, of White Town, Pennsylvania, is it realistic that you pull in everybody else? I don't know. You know, I don't think you need to try and, and make it forced. I think you should be on your knees praying and asking God to bring in everybody from the north, east, south, and west, that, that God would help you leverage the influence that he's given you, that he's entrusted to you. Um, but now as you move to Seattle, incredibly diverse, you know, I think you should be looking for it. You know, I think you should be you. Um, there, there's a story in the Old Testament. You remember this, uh, Elisha and the Shunammite woman? Um, you know, like she, she's in, in jeopardy and he goes, well, what, I can help you, but what do you got? She said, well, I just got a little bit of oil. So he says, okay, well, we'll go and borrow as many vessels as you can. And, and, and so she does. And she goes, her neighbors, imagine those vessels would have been all different shapes and sizes and rectangle and square and circular or whatever. And, and she began to pour her oil into those vessels. And when her oil or when the vessels ran out, then her oil ran out. Right. So as you move now to Seattle, this diverse place, this is what I would say to you. Borrow as much as you can from churches you look up to, churches you have this, this, you resonate with, as many different vessels as you can, all different shapes and sizes, but make sure it's your oil, make sure it's your anointing, make sure it's the call of God and the fingerprint God's put on you, that you're pouring into those different things that you've borrowed. Man, and you just watch who God brings into your world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So good. That's That's so good. Maybe so, one more <clears throat> question as we're wrapping up here today. No, everybody wants to go home. I don't blame you. You got to beat traffic, man. We'll see the with that. Well, thank you so much. Let's give another hand. Thank you all for attending. Thank you for attending the ARC Conference 2018. Have a wonderful afternoon. And uh, God bless you guys as you head back to your churches and uh, lead in your environments.